You have reached a phone call from Paul, a literary hub podcast. To hear more, visit lethub.com. Paul Holden Graber's conversation with Brian Stevenson. Hello? Hello, is this Brian Stevenson? It is. Oh, Brian, I'm, I am delighted that you're taking my call. I'm happy to talk with you. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. What am I, what am I interrupting now? I am in my office in Montgomery, Alabama. We are working on a brief being filed on behalf of a death row prisoner. We are actually working on plans for our Racial Justice Museum today, and I'm also trying to uh, figure out uh, how to uh, uh, persuade some uh, lawyers to take pro bono cases. That's what I've been working on for the last few minutes here. Is, is this, is, for the last two minutes here, is, is this a typical day for you? Uh, yeah, it is. Uh, we've got a group of young people here, and we're doing a presentation for them. And so my client, uh, Anthony Ray Hinton, who spent 30 years on death row uh, for a crime he didn't commit, he's here and he's talking uh, with these young people, and we're going to have a meeting on our museum in a few minutes. So, yeah, it's pretty typical. Things are just really moving quickly. Um, it's it's always something going on, and there's always something due, always a deadline to meet. Uh, but that is pretty much the norm around here. Do you know where the word deadline comes from? I don't. I think, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm hesitating, Brian, to say this to you of all people, <laughs> but I, I think it comes from prison language, and it's a line whereby which if a prisoner uh, crosses it, he is shot. Ah, I, I did not know that, uh, but it would not surprise me. Uh, you know, one of the things that, burden me, one of the things that challenge me is that uh, those lines seem to exist all over the place these days. I, I, I do feel like we, <laughs> we are living at a time and in too many places where, uh, in one way or the other, we are, we're marking these lines uh, that become uh, very threatening, very menacing to people. Um, what lines are you thinking of in particular? Oh, I, I, I think about you know the way in which we uh, in our schools have created this way of interacting with children. I mean, one of the things I'm really unhappy about is I go into schools and I hear principals who sound like wardens and teachers who sound like correctional officers, and I'm working in communities where children are born into violent families, they live in violent neighborhoods, they go to violent schools, and they're traumatized by their violence. And what these children need is an intervention where someone tries to make them feel safe. That's how you cope and recover and help people uh, uh, overcome trauma disorders. But instead, they end up in schools where there are all of these lines. They go through metal detectors. They're told if they do this, they'll be suspended. If they do that, they'll be expelled. And you see these unbelievably high rates of suspension and expulsion for these children. They're crossing lines where all of these bad things happen to them. And we're not appreciating that uh, many of these transgressions are rooted in disabilities and trauma. 
and disorder. And uh, we talk now about a schoolhouse to jailhouse pipeline, another kind of line uh, where children are thrown out of schools and they are put into detention facilities and then they're put into jails or prisons. You know, I spent a lot of time in poor communities where children, 12 and 13-year-old boys, tell me that they don't believe they're going to be free by the time they're 21. I think they see their lives as so constrained uh, by mass incarceration, by policing, by over-incarceration, by over-sentencing, by the margins that keep them out of opportunities, that they feel very despairing of that. And uh, for formerly incarcerated people, the people who come out of jails and prisons, it seems like they are constrained by lines. They try to get a job, they try to get housing, they try to get opportunities, they try to vote, and that line that says they are formerly incarcerated it blocks them. And uh, one of my great frustrations is the way in which we try to uh, uh, box people in, try to mark these spaces, and we tell people, don't leave that space or something bad will happen to you. And I think it's become one of the characteristics of American society that is most regrettable, uh, you know, that we have the highest rate of incarceration in the world as a function of the way our fear and anger has caused us uh, you know, to kind of mark spaces to create these lines. I know I'm going far afield. No, no, you're not. No, you're not. You're, no, you're not going far afield. It's it's quite extraordinary in my mind that you, the origin of a word, not not quite its etymology, but its origin, um, has made you think about different ways in which we basically keep people in and keep them out. Um, and how frightening it is what we're doing. I'm, I'm, I'm reminded in a, in a utopian manner of a line that I've always liked by Victor Hugo, where he says that to fermer une prison, c'est ouvrir une école, c'est fermer une prison. To open a school is to close a prison. Well, in, in, in a sense, he, I think, was deeply right. But the question really that he wasn't addressing at that moment quite, at least not in this quotation, is what kind of a school? Yes, that's right. And, you know, I think uh, that's exactly it. I mean, I do see a presumption of dangerousness and guilt being assigned to people who are black or brown, people who are different, uh, and we act on that presumption of dangerousness and guilt, and we distrust, and we disfavor, and we exclude, and we marginalize. And, uh, you know, uh, the first people were the original victims of this when white settlers came to the continent of North America, and we had this genocide where millions of Native people, Native Americans, indigenous people were slaughtered by famine and disease and war. And then it was the Africans who were enslaved for centuries where we could draw lines around their humanity, their values, their decency, and say, no, these are not fully human beings. Human, full human beings, and so we can enslave them, and that continued. And and uh, throughout most of the 19th and 20th centuries, we constrained the hopes and aspirations and humanity of people of color with these ridiculous racial lines. And as we fought to overcome that, we still keep drawing lines. And now, new citizens and undocumented people and religious minorities and sexual minorities are always being uh, uh, confronted with these lines that we draw around them. 
And uh, and we've made schools, in my judgment, places where we reinforce those lines, where we expel and suspend and discard and criminalize. Uh, when I was a young child, uh, it would have been unheard of for the police to come into a school and put a five or six year old child in handcuffs, no matter what they did. It was just it would just be unconscionable. And now that happens with all too much frequency in places around this country. And we've got to recognize the damage that we do to one another when we allow lines created and uh, crafted uh, in fear and anger to shape the way we see the world, to shape the way we treat people in the world. And that's what uh, I'm really challenged by uh, when I look at the work we do at the Equal Justice Initiative and what I see going on around. I mean, you know, it, it sort of leaves me nearly nearly speechless, except that I, I know you are someone who one should ask, you know, what's there to be done? You know, what... Um, I, re I remember asking you that very question once upon a time, um, when when you were speaking with Sister Helen Prejean, and I'm 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 you know I'm wondering you know short of feeling helpless and hopeless, which are both both of them are feelings I don't think you 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 hope to provoke at all. You know what what can we do? What can we do to make sure that children are not handcuffed? I mean, when you said six years old, I. I must say, even I, I don't quite know that, but it obviously is happening, and it's deeply troubling and uh, fundamentally shocking and horrendous. Yeah. Well, we do have to. I, I mean, I, I, we do have to erase these lines, but there is a way to do it. I, I am persuaded that we can uh, change the way we uh, think about these things. I think we first have to get closer to the people who are outside the lines. Those of us who um, enjoy a certain amount of privilege and space and latitude and influence and power and opportunity have to get proximate to the people who have been marginalized, the people who have been uh, excluded, the people who are disfavored. I think most people uh, hear throughout their lifetime that if there's a bad part of town, if there are places where the schools don't do very well, if there are communities where there's uh, addiction or violence or despair, stay as far away from those uh, parts of the community as possible. I think we have to do the opposite if we're really going to create a healthier future and community. We've got to get closer to the people who are excluded and, and suffering and marginalized, closer to the people who are in jails or prisons, closer to the people coming out of jails or prisons, closer to the children coming from those communities uh, where violence and despair and poverty have been the defining characteristics. And then I think, uh, and there's power in proximity too. I, you know, I grew up in a community where black children couldn't go to the public schools. I started my education in a racially segregated colored school. But lawyers came into that community. They chose to get proximate, and they opened up the public schools. I got to go to high school. I got to go to college. And I think that's what we can achieve when we get proximate. But I also think we have to change some of these narratives. We have to change the way we see uh, other human beings. Uh, we have to push back against this idea that people are the worst thing they've ever done. Uh, I think we have to stay hopeful, because you're right. 
um, without our hope, without believing things we haven't seen, we'll begin to think that this lined existence that operates all around us is the only way we can operate. We have to be willing to believe things we haven't seen. Uh, because, And your hope is key to that. I really do believe that hopelessness is the uh, enemy of justice. And we've got to be willing to stay hopeful, because hope is what gets us to stand when people tell us to sit down. It's what gets us to speak when people say, be quiet. And finally, I think we've got to be willing to do some uncomfortable things. You can't erase these lines, many of which have been etched and forged by decades of animosity and bigotry, uh, without being willing to sometimes do things that are inconvenient and uncomfortable. The history of ending oppression, creating justice, transformation all over the world is a history of courageous, hopeful people choosing to do inconvenient and uncomfortable things in service of something transformative, in service of something necessary uh, to create more freedom and, and justice. You know, I, 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 I read the editorial in the New York Times, I think it was a couple of days ago, um, when a life sentence starts at 15. Yeah. Uh, you probably saw, saw that editorial about Joe Ligon. And that story, together with the story that was written, I think, a couple of years before Condemned to Die Because He's Black, a story about Du and Buck. These stories must must resonate with you on a daily basis because they are the very kinds of people you are constantly trying to defend. Oh, absolutely. Uh, no, I represent a lot of 13- and 14-year-old children who've been sentenced to die in prison. I work with a lot of young people who have been uh, put in adult uh, jails and prisons where they're at risk of sexual assault and abuse. Uh, I spend a lot of time with families where um, kids are being uh, menaced by uh, our system of uh, criminal justice, which oftentimes uh, is quite predatory when it comes to vulnerable populations. And so for me, it is essential that we find ways to uh, erase some of these lines, that we find ways to create new opportunities and new uh, platforms to build something healthier than what we've built in American society. What do you tell the families? You know, I tell them that, uh, uh, you know, they have to join uh, this long mass of people who've had to fight against institutional forces that are very problematic. Uh, you know, to survive slavery, uh, a community of people had to will themselves uh, to be smart and tactical and strategic and thoughtful and to endure. And I know that because my great-grandfather was enslaved. Uh, to overcome lynching, uh, massive people had to find a way to cope and confront with the ugliness of racial terrorism. Uh, to overcome segregation, uh, masses of people had to come together and find ways to resist and advocate and march and protest and uh, overcome uh, that horrific system of racial hierarchy and to uh, manage mass incarceration and excessive punishment. We're going to have to do the same thing. We're going to have to join those forces and those communities around us that understand uh, that change comes when we believe things we haven't seen, that we make progress when we uh, understand the nature of the problems and we thoughtfully try to engage those problems in strategic and thoughtful ways. You, you talk... Um, tr 
tremendously movingly and deeply about your your grandmother and the incredible effect she had on you. Yeah, um, my grandmother was remarkable. Uh, she was the daughter of people who were enslaved. Uh, her parents were born in slavery in Bowling Green, Virginia, and the experience of slavery was something that she heard about every day. And she was in my ear with that very same narrative uh, when I was a little boy. And she just was wise, and she did things that I didn't appreciate then, but I appreciate now. When I was a little boy, my grandmother would come up to me, and she'd give me uh, this hug, and she would squeeze me so tightly, I could barely breathe. And she'd let me go, and then she'd see me an hour later, and she'd say, Brian, do you still feel me hugging you? And if I said no, she would jump on me again. Uh, and if I said yes, she would let me be. And by the time I was 10, she had taught me to say to her, whenever I would see her, I'd say, Mama, I always feel you hugging me. And it's amazing to me because now as I try to do this work, we're trying to challenge the death penalty and excessive punishment. We're trying to end mass incarceration. We're trying to talk about slavery. We're trying to talk about terrorism. We're trying to talk about segregation. We want to change the narrative about race. We want to confront the politics of fear and anger. There are moments when it seems overwhelming, when it seems impossible, when it seems uh, unwise to try to push as hard as we are pushing. Uh, but I still feel my grandmother hugging me, and not just my grandmother, but all of those wise people who understood the importance of fighting, of resisting forces of injustice and, and abuse. And uh, it's that kind of magical wisdom uh, that she shared with me, that enduring wisdom that I've come to appreciate. And uh, there were uh, lots of people like my grandmother that knew uh, that uh, what they needed to give to their children and their grandchildren and their great-grandchildren was not just the love of a parent for a child, uh, but, the, but the wisdom and the capacity and the power. The resilience. Thing, the resilience to endure things that they should not have to endure, but they will have to endure. And, and a way, in a way, teach people how to touch others. Yeah. Um, and how to be, how to touch and to be touched and to be in a, a word that you used a couple of times in our conversation so far was a word that I, I don't hear many people talk about in, in, in the way you did, which is to be proximate. Yes, yes. I, I am persuaded that there's power in proximity. Uh, and uh, that's what my grandmother taught me, that if you want to understand a problem, if you want to make a difference in the world, you've got to get close enough to the problem uh, to see the nuances of the problem, to see the details of the problem. We have a lot of people in government and in policy that are trying to create solutions to problems from a distance. And when you're far away, your solutions don't work as well because you don't appreciate some of those nuances and details. But when you get close, you see things and you understand things that you cannot see and understand from a distance. And uh, that's why my grandmother would hold me close. She wanted me to feel the force of her love and her commitment to me in ways that uh, I would never forget, and I have never forgotten them. And it's taken a while. You know, when I was a law student at Harvard, when I was a college student, I didn't like telling people I started my education in a racially segregated school. I had some fear I might be diminished by that. You know, when I was at law school, I didn't tell people that uh, my, my great-grandparents were enslaved. And I wasn't ashamed, but I was just worried 
Now I feel the need to tell everybody. I want people to know uh, the path that I have been on. I want them to know uh, that I am the great-grandson of enslaved people. I, I did begin my education in a racially segregated school uh, because in knowing that, I want them to appreciate that the problems that we face are problems that we can overcome, but only if we face them in the right way. And uh, I share that with my clients. I share it with anybody who, who I talk with. And and I feel in 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 a sense you you share that, uh, or, or tell me if if you feel a, a kindredness, an elective if, uh, affinity, as it were, with with Tanahasi Coates in Between the World and Me. It seems that you you have a a a similar way of thinking that you you must in some way reckon with all of this. Yes, well, I do. I think uh, I think Tanahasi's book book is brilliant, and uh, I do think we are burdened by our history of racial inequality. Uh, you know, I think uh, our our history of racial inequality has created a kind of smog. Uh, it's a, it, 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 you know, uh, slavery polluted our 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 way of thinking, our, our way of acting with one another. It caused us to see each other through this narrative, this lens of racial difference. And that was further uh, reinforced by the era of racial terrorism, uh, which is defined by lynching. Then it was codified during the era of segregation, and it persists today uh, with mass incarceration. And the presumption of dangerousness and guilt gets assigned to uh, black and brown people. And we have to confront it. I agree that we cannot move forward until we change this narrative, until we address this smog. I mean, in the climate change uh, arena, in the environmental arena, we now recognize that our behaviors, burning all of these fossil fuels, uh, discarding all of these uh, contaminants and pollutants into the environment has been deeply destructive. It has created real threats uh, to our existence, to our species, and we have to change if we're going to survive. I think the same is true when it comes to our consciousness about race and what the legacy of slavery and lynching and segregation has done requires a similar kind of change, a similar kind of reorientation uh, to begin to address the uh, the pollutants that we have released, the smog and the. And I think the, I, I think that the, the word confrontation is is what made me made me think that there was a a, um, a kindredness between Tanahasi's. Uh, 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 book and and yours. Uh, it, it seemed to me that that you were speaking a language that was not not dissimilar. And when you when you mentioned the word proximate, it reminded me of a conversation I just had with. I, I don't know if you're familiar with Chris Abani, a, a Nigerian writer who I much admire, who wrote a book called The Face, Cartography of the Void, and it's so tremendously important that we look at each, that we both understand what our face is made of and that we look at each other in the face. You know, Camus famously said that, alas, at a certain age, a man is responsible for his face. Yes, yes, yes. No, I think that is really insightful and really important. And, you know, I think sometimes when people hear the word confrontation, they think of something uh, violent, or they think of something uh, forceful or uh, destructive. Uh, but in fact, uh, some of the most powerful confrontations are the confrontations that we create when we do look uh, closely 
at the faces of others, at our own faces, and we look for the humanity in one another. We look for um, compassion. We look for uh, the integrity that will motivate us to do things we have not yet done. Uh, uh, you know, the civil rights movement was a movement defined by nonviolence, but it was right. ultimately one of the most provocative, most transformative confrontations of a system and a society and a nation the world has ever seen. And uh, there is power in the courage uh, to confront the things that need to be confronted. You know, in, in your, your extraordinary book, Just Mercy, a story of justice and redemption, you, you have some of those extraordinary stories, so many, uh, about your grandmother. Less, uh, featured less, perhaps, uh, are both your mother and father. Yeah. And I'm, I'm wondering if that, uh, well, I'm, I, I, I assume that omission means something. <laughs> no, uh, my my mother uh, was an extraordinary person, and uh, you know I do talk about her some. In fact, I dedicated my book to uh, my mother uh, because she was a remarkable person. Uh, you know, we grew up in a poor rural community, and uh, we didn't have a lot. Uh, but my mother believed that education could change our futures, and uh, she went into debt. Uh, to buy books for us. I, mean, I remember reading Dr. Seuss books at a really young age, and my mom uh, went into debt to buy a world book encyclopedia. We had them in our house, and very few kids had that. And and she made these sacrifices so that we would have exposure to a world that we couldn't see, that we couldn't touch, that we couldn't visit, but we could imagine. And she gave me the gift of knowledge, and she taught me music, and I would not be able to do much of what I do uh, without the comfort, the therapy, the beauty uh, of music, which my mother shared with me. And my dad was also, and is also remarkable, my mother passed away uh, some years ago, my dad is still alive, and he survived Jim Crow. He was one of these people yeah. who, when he was a teenager, there were no high schools for black children yeah. in the county where he lived. Uh, but he worked hard. He's just an incredibly hardworking person. He's 87, and he's still working. <laughs> yeah. He's at a movie theater collecting it, tickets. Isn't that amazing? I mean, I, I, I remember my father at age 92 when he was asked when he would retire. He said, I'm too old to retire. Yes, exactly. <laughs> you know, I think uh, for, 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 for them, uh, they had insights about survival, about success, about thriving, about uh, enjoying in life that they've shared with me, and they modeled that, and I'm grateful for parents who model things for me that, that I appreciate more and more each day of my life. And again, again, we're, we're, we're back to, to, to these notions of resilience. You were mentioning a moment ago uh, the Dr. Zeus books and the encyclopedias. Um, what other books do you, do you remember reading that had a real strong impact, and, and perhaps I can take it to, to this day. Uh, are there books that, that matter to you now, perhaps even outside of, of the field that so occupies and preoccupies you, which is so important? Sure, sure. Well, I remember that probably the most uh, formative, powerful book I read when I was in high school was uh, Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man. It was such a... Uh, 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 kind of a transformational experience to read someone articulating this reality that I had been experiencing but could not articulate. And then when I got to college, I became deeply, 
uh, drawn uh, to the work of Russian writers. And so reading Dostoevsky and Tolstoy was just something that really changed me. I read The Brothers Karamazov probably five times uh, during my time in college, and, and there were insights and uh, thoughts about human nature and human decency that were articulated in ways that I've never uh, forgotten. And uh, literature has continued to move me, uh, I, you know, and I read works now that I think are extraordinary. One of my favorite writers is uh, uh, Marilyn Robinson. Yes. I think Gilead is one of the most uh, uh, moving, meaningful, brilliant books of the last half century. And when I read someone who can expose aspects of human nature and human struggle, uh, and human dignity with the kind of power and clarity and beauty uh, that some of these writers do. I'm not only moved by that, uh, but I'm affirmed by it. It makes me feel like fighting for human dignity and decency and progress is a fight worth fighting. And you mentioned a little bit earlier that your, your mother had also brought to you the gift of music. Yes. And, and w was there music back then that was in the household, and is there music now that really is important to you? Yeah, well, we had this beat-up old piano when I was a very little child because my mother played. She was a church musician at times, and uh, uh, she taught me to play when I was really small. And then we lost the piano. We couldn't keep the piano. And then we got one back at, when I was uh, nine or ten. And, and ever since then, I've always felt the need to have... Uh, an instrument nearby. You know, I got very active in music in, in high school and college. And even when I was in law school, I would spend time uh, at the Berkeley School of Music with other musicians. And it was just a way of coping with life. Yes, I was going to life. say. And, uh, and, and some years ago, after living in these little apartments where I couldn't have an instrument, I decided to buy a house so I could get a piano. And <laughs> it's my greatest source of, of comfort at times. So the, the, the piano has a home. Yes, yes, exactly right. And uh, yeah, and for me, it, it, there's a language, there's a there's a way of talking and thinking and expressing yourself um, uh, in music that is unique. That is uh, for me rare, and uh, and it's that expression that sometimes can be the most comforting, the most meaningful, uh, the most reassuring. I, I grew up, uh, you know, around a lot of gospel music, which had the anguish and depth and emotion of the blues mixed with uh, the hopefulness and excitement of uh, uh, rhythm and blues. And uh, that, of course, uh, led to jazz, which allowed, you know, people to think uh, in really creative ways about the way in which you can create harmony and dissonance and rhythm uh, to articulate things about life and your experience and hope that are just not possible in any other idiom, in any other way. And uh, those music forms continue to you know, help me uh, do the work that I do to shape me. Uh, obviously, classical music has uh, this richness and history and uh, complexity and beauty that can also enhance uh, what you're trying to manage on a given day. Who in, who in, who in the blues um, and in gospel music and who in classical music? And, and, and finally, on the subject of music, what contemporary musician um, inspires you now? 
Yeah. So I was very moved by uh, people like Billie Holiday because she had an honesty to her her voice and her singing that was quite powerful. Uh, but I was also really intrigued by the great, uh, you know, technical, clinical musicians like Art Tatum. He was just brilliant. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Extraordinary. Art Tatum and, uh, by himself and then with people like Ben Webster and others. I mean, it's exactly. just, just right. fantastic. I can see those covers. Yes, exactly. He was a genius, really. Uh, and Oscar Peterson was very much of oh, that yes. same sort. Uh, and then I loved, uh, you know, people like Charlie Parker and Miles Davis because they brought uh, uh, this kind of intensity and uh, and uh, integrity to the music that was really powerful. Um, and, you know, there were uh, popular artists who became very uh, well-known, but I knew them really through their work in gospel. People like Aretha Franklin, and she's a pop yes. uh, queen of soul and all of that, but she had an authenticity that was shaped by her gospel recordings, and those are some of my uh, favorite. And, uh, you know, I, I love all kinds of music, and, uh, you know, I, I love Brahms, and I love Mozart, and I love uh, uh, Beethoven, I love Chopin, I love a lot of the uh, great classical composers. Um, and I love people who do innovative things now that take these art forms and uh, create new ways of, uh, of expressing things. And there, you know, there are a lot of wonderful people out there who I, I really enjoy. Is there someone in particular? Oh, let's see. Uh, I mean, you know, some of my favorite contemporary artists are people like uh, Chick Corea. I love uh, uh, what um, uh, what. Uh, uh, Keith Jarrett produces. I love. Uh, uh, there's a, actually a, an electronic group called the Yellow Jacks. I think they're really innovative and really thoughtful. They're one of my uh, favorite artists. Uh, and there are people. You know, I, I grew up listening to people like Stevie Wonder because he oh, was yes. also another kind of genius, and he had a way of using music to not just make sounds that were charming and rhythmic and uh, attractive, but he made sounds that were thoughtful and moving and that got people to uh, think differently about their obligations as citizens in the world. Uh, when people use music to achieve something transformative, that's what gets my attention. You know, it, 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 the conversation we're just having at this moment makes me think about... Um, a conversation I once had with Jesse Norman, the, the great opera singer, and just how deeply she was, was moved, of course, by hearing opera uh, that became her life, but at first listening to Jesse Norman, uh, listening to Mahalia Jackson, and how, how deeply, you know, listening to Rusty Bells, listening to some of the incredible tunes of Mahalia Jackson, just got, got her deeply, you know, deeply rooted, as it were, in, in what mattered. In, and the honesty you spoke about is so important. I always remember that, that comparison that was made, though I adore Ella Fitzgerald. I mean, I love her with all my heart. There was once a comparison made between Ella Fitzgerald and Billie Holiday, and the comparison was Ella Fitzgerald says I'm going to the corner store to get a six pack she'll she'll be back in a moment when Billie Holiday says I'm going to the corner you're not sure that she'll come back yes you know, <laughs> no, that's very true and she really sings the blues and it's really bluesy and it's really I mean of course 
uh, strange fruit is probably the, the the harshest and hardest, or one of them at least. Yes, yes, but they move you in ways, and I think you're right. There are those voices uh, like Mahalia Jackson and Marion Williams, where when you hear them, you're just forced to stop and listen. There is something so honest, so urgent, so powerful trying to free itself in the songs that they sing that you you, you have to just sit and listen. Brian, I was going to ask you, since you, you've written uh, Just Mercy um, and, and given those extraordinary statistics that are extraordinary because they're so disturbing of, of one black man on three will end up in one form or another in, in prison. Have things deteriorated or improved or, or where, where do we stand now? And with, so we're, yeah, go ahead. We're making, we're making progress. I think that uh, there's a different debate happening now. You have people on both the right and the left talking about the need for ending mass incarceration, and that's very encouraging. Uh, we, um, um, you know, have ended uh, mandatory life without parole sentences for children convicted of, uh, uh, of all crimes. We've banned life without parole sentences for children convicted of non-homicides. The death sentencing rate has dropped. The execution rate has dropped. We still have a lot of work to do. Uh, but I'm hopeful uh, that we can make progress, and uh, and you have to stay hopeful if you do this kind of work. Do you think a president of the United States could come out and say he or perhaps she is against death, the death penalty? I do think they could do that, and I think they should, uh, because I don't think the death penalty is a topic that we can... Uh, figure out by asking do people deserve to die for the crimes they've committed. I think the question we have to ask is do we deserve to kill? And when you have the kind of criminal justice system that we have, we have a system that treats you better if you're rich and guilty than if you're poor and innocent. We have a system that is defined by unreliability and error. Uh, we have a system that is compromised by politics and race and power uh, that is not being exercised in, to advance the rule of law, but sometimes it's exercised to advance careers and ambitions. When you have a system like that, I don't think we should be in the business of killing people. And I think a president uh, or a presidential candidate could say that. And I think one of the steps forward that we've made is we've created an environment where I don't think that would doom uh, that president or that political candidate. I think we now understand enough about the problems of the death penalty uh, that we can hear someone say that and not think that they're incapable of providing effective leadership. What What are your fears about the, the current situation and the, the presidential debate that will come upon us very soon? Well, I'm very worried about uh, this comfort level with saying things that are shamelessly racist and bigoted. I have, I don't, recall a time when people have been rewarded as openly uh, for engaging in the rhetoric of bigotry uh, as much as what we've seen here in the last uh, year and a half. And I think that the consequences of that are going to endure long beyond uh, this election. And uh, long when, beyond whoever is elected. That's exactly right. Uh, when people get comfortable thinking it's okay to demonize uh, Mexicans as rapists or demonize Muslims and talk about excluding them categorically, uh, when we question the integrity or capacity of someone to be a judge or a teacher or a journalist, 
uh, if they're a racial minority, just because they're a racial minority, we are engaging in the kind of racism, the kind of religious bigotry that has haunted this nation throughout its history, that has compromised us for centuries. And I would hate to see us uh, take one step backward into that way of thinking. And that's what I'm fearful of, is that we're not as uh, repelled by, we're not as antagonized by, we're not as outraged by uh, this rhetoric of hate and bigotry that uh, that I think we should be. Do you think the, the current president has enough time and enough um, capital, as it were, to nominate and go through with a Supreme Court justice? Well, I don't think, yeah, I don't think that the president has the uh, legal authority to complete that process. I mean, obviously, the president nominates someone, but it's the Congress that has the authority to uh, approve that person. And it seems like our current Senate is unwilling to do that, and that's also a sign of the times that we would engage in um, hijacking the court, undermining the work of the court uh, to curry political favor uh, with constituents. And so uh, it's, a, it's a regrettable situation. I, I, I really do think that. I keep hoping for a change that might allow things to move forward, uh, but we'll just have to wait and see. Have you been approached? Uh, no. Uh, uh, people have um, uh, 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 talked uh, about me in yeah. that context, and I'm very flattered by that. But I'm uh, I'm 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 content doing the work that I do, and will continue to do it until uh, until I'm required to do something else. But would you? I mean, it seems I I, I wonder if if serving on the Supreme Court would take you away from the incredible work you're doing now. Well, it's certainly one of the few things that uh, that uh, I would I would con consider. Yes, exactly. of course. I I think it would probably be foolish not to. <laughs> it would be the height of arrogance to say, "Oh no, I would never consider that." Yeah, I, no, I I have great respect for the court and the members of the court. I I, I look to that court as an institution uh, that is desperately needed to protect the rights of people who are disfavored. I mean, I'm a product of Brown versus Board of Education. It was the Supreme Court. Uh, that in many ways bought uh, my freedom uh, to go to public school and to get an education. That would not have happened through the political process. So I believe deeply in the rule of law and very much hope that we have uh, members of the court that are committed to protecting those who need the protection of the rule of law at times of crisis and conflict. In, in closing, before I ask you to read some something from, from Just Mercy, a passage that I particularly adore, um, you were mentioning that this morning you, you were speaking to some of your team about the work that lies ahead, the museum you're doing, and I, I had occasion recently to speak a little bit with Chris Jackson, your, your, your editor, and, and now a, the publisher of, of the upcoming series, One World. And he he also mentioned that you're you're working on a on a new book possibly that will include that. Can you can you tell me a little bit about this project? Yes. Um, well, I am persuaded that we have to change the narrative about race in America. I think we have to begin uh, to confront our history. I mean, it's 2016. There are almost no places in America where you can have an honest experience with the legacy of lynching and racial terrorism. There are very few places where you can deal honestly with the legacy of slavery. Uh, in South Africa, 
you are required to confront the history of apartheid. There is an apartheid museum. Uh, there are places where you are forced to deal with the damage that was done by apartheid. In Rwanda, there's a genocide museum. There are places where you are forced to understand the history of the genocide. In Germany, uh, you can't go uh, through Berlin without seeing the markers and stones that have been placed near the homes of Jewish families that were abducted during the Holocaust. Most Germans want you to go to Auschwitz and Birkenbau and reflect soberly on that history. In this country, we do the opposite. We don't talk about uh, slavery. We don't talk about lynching. We don't talk about really the legacy of segregation. And I think we are burdened because of our silence. I think we have been undermined in our quest for freedom and equality as a result of that silence. And so we want to change that. We want to put up markers at every lynching site in America. We've already erected markers to mark the spaces where the slave trade was most active. We're building a museum called From Enslavement to Mass Incarceration. We want to create a space where people can honestly engage with this history. We want to build a memorial that documents and details the ravages of lynching. And I think we have to change the landscape, which is currently littered with the iconography of a false narrative that celebrates the architects and defenders of slavery through Confederate monuments and memorials and buildings. And I think we have to change that if we're going to actually get to a place that's healthier more just uh, and uh, more hopeful. And so the book will will be about about these memorials that you're erecting. Well, it'll be about this narrative of racial difference that we have allowed to persist in American society, and uh, about the importance of confronting uh, these institutions that still haunt us. I think that's what uh, I want to explore and uh, and to narrate in detail in, in my next book. Brian, in in closing, I, I I I really wish for the people who are overhearing our conversation on this phone call to to just hear how how extraordinary your your writing is and. Um, The passage I've chosen is a passage from the introduction, which is called Higher Ground. And it begins um, on page 17 of Just Mercy, with the words, Proximity has taught me. And it ends um, with the end of the chapter with two words which are just extraordinary, which are unmerited grace. And um, they struck me and immediately made me know that I had to talk to you many times and that I not only had to, but I needed to, and I needed others to be exposed to you so that the world could change a little bit through the words you have both written and the words you say and the work you do and the hope you give to people who are incarcerated. So... Um, I'd like you to read that. Maybe you want to say a few things to, to, to set the, the stage and then just read it and we'll have had our phone call. Sure. Well, thank you very much for that, Paul. Um, yeah, the first chapter actually talks about me being a little frustrated in law school and not being sure I wanted to be a lawyer and then going uh, to death row in Georgia and meeting a condemned man who really changed me uh, because his humanity uh, was so overwhelming, his desire to be redeemed was so overwhelming that it uh, radicalized my interest in the law. 
and made me realize that I wanted to help condemned people get to higher ground and that my journey to higher ground was tied to his journey. And I finished that chapter uh, with these paragraphs, and I'll start reading here. Thank you. Pro- yeah. Proximity has taught me some basic and humbling truths, including this vital lesson. Each of us is more than the worst thing we've ever done. My work with the poor and the incarcerated has persuaded me that the opposite of poverty is not wealth. The opposite of poverty is justice. Finally, I've come to believe that the true measure of our commitment to justice, the character of our society, our commitment to the rule of law, fairness, and equality cannot be measured by how we treat the rich, the powerful, the privileged, and the respected among us. The true measure of our character is how we treat the poor, the disfavored, the accused, the incarcerated, and the condemned. We are all implicated when we allow other people to be mistreated. An absence of compassion can corrupt the decency of a community, a state, a nation. Fear and anger can make us vindictive and abusive, unjust and unfair, until we all suffer from the absence of mercy We condemn ourselves as much as we victimize others. The closer we get to mass incarceration and extreme levels of punishment, the more I believe it's necessary to recognize that we all need mercy, we all need justice, and perhaps we all need some measure of unmerited grace. Brian Stevenson, it's been um, a privilege to talk with you. I thank you from the bottom of my heart for taking this phone call. Well, thank you very much. Love talking with you as well, Paul. So do I. All the best and until soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.